0: From Greenbiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Greenbiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Inside Sustainability at Hewlett Packard, both of them, Zen and the Triple Bottom Line, Why Public Opinion on Climate Change Matters to Business. And what does it mean for companies to be all-in? We're all-in this week on 350. It's July 13th, 2018, Friday the 13th for you superstitious fans. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me per usual from the hot and humid Midland, New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather.
1: It's hot, but it isn't humid, thank goodness. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Hello, Joel.
0: Well, I'll take back the hot and not so humid Midland, New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, this is, you know, I remember when summer, you know, sort of the 4th of July came and Things kind of slowed down. There wasn't a lot of news, you know. You know, there were a few events. There's just, you know, this the news cycle as a, such as it is uh, kind of just slowed down uh, in in the warm weather. That's long gone.
1: It is long gone. <laughs> but it's exciting because there's a lot of things going on that were. Eager to shape and form, and and I'm doing a lot of really cool interviews for the Verge conference coming up in October. Uh, finding great buyers for renewable energy and getting some some tremendously wonderful panels together. I know I'm sounding very, uh, I'm using a lot of adjectives right now. I'm excited ad- adjectives, but you can tell I'm excited.
0: <laughs> well, that's great, and 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 for those who aren't in the know, uh, Heather is is. Uh, heading up, um, uh, along with um, our colleague Paul Carp, the Verge Energy uh, part of the three, uh, the triumvirate of Verge Energy, Verge Transport, and Verge Circular, the three concurrent conferences that will be taking place uh, in the uh, Oakland, California Convention Center in, in mid-October. Um, anything you're particularly excited about, you want to tell us about?
1: So, from my perspective, the thing that I've really enjoyed um, – doing over the past couple of months is talking to companies that aren't as big as the Googles or the Microsofts of the world when they, when they want to buy, you know, when they have buying influence as far as renewable energy that are, that are entering the game, right? So companies that are making much smaller renewable energy contracts, they're, they're signing them, they're finding ways to get into this, into this game, if you will without having to buy hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of power. Cisco, for example, Cisco, the food company, not Cisco, the networking company, uh, did a deal with NRG um, where they're buying 25 megawatts and they were able to just come to terms. So there's a lot of creativity going on in terms of how organizations and companies are contracting to add more renewable energy to the electric grid. And so that for me has been a wonderful uh, learning experience throughout the spring and and I'm looking forward to bringing some of those perspectives to the Verge conference because I think a lot of um, businesses get hung up on the idea that I'm not big enough to have an influence. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of really great influence going on that's from, from smaller and mid-sized companies.
0: So uh, are these new kinds of arrangements uh, to acquire solar energy or if, if not, in fact, solar panels? Uh, Are they allowing new kinds of companies to come in uh, and become solar customers, or is it just making it more affordable to the companies that have uh, already are sort of the likely suspects?
1: So it's a couple of different things. In some respects, it's some changes to the tax laws. So, for example, uh, I wrote about Cox Enterprises, the, the big sort of services company. They do a lot of media and telecommunications services, I think automotive services as well. And because of some changes in the way that um, the investments get, get managed and accounted for, they, they've been able to broaden their reach um, beyond just installations on their own properties. Um, so they've been able to get in much bigger. And they consider that to be an investment. So it's a sort of a short-term hedge on their money. And, and they're able to have a better message as far as clean power goes, but also they're, they're treating it as an investment. And then when you go back to the, the, the deal I just mentioned a moment ago between NRG and Cisco, NRG is taking on some of the the risks associated with the, the power purchase agreement, making it basically easier. I think I I believe I remember the contract is about, about five pages long, which is just if if anyone if any of you out there have done a power purchase agreement sort of the individual custom way, you'll know that it's that's very short and very specific and very uh, succinct compared to what what normally happens so I think it's a combination of creativity and um, new financial mechanisms and also some some of the you know we know what some of these things need and and require and so it's in some in some ways the processes are becoming not templated but more um, predictable and more uh, you know easy to figure out so I mean I wouldn't say it's easy by any stretch of the imagination, but it is getting easier.
0: Well, speaking of leadership in energy and transport and circular economy, one of the things we did this week is we launched the uh, nominations for a new award called the Verge Vanguard Awards that we're going to be handing out in September in the run-up to to Verge and, and probably doing some recognition on stage uh, at the Verge event itself. And so uh, we are in the middle of the hunt for uh, individuals, uh, companies, organizations like NGOs or uh, government agencies or academic institutions who uh, want to bring or are at the lead, leading edge of bringing product services and business models uh, at the intersection of technology and sustainability. Uh, Heather, uh, you wrote you wrote this piece introducing the awards. Uh, it's 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 kind of exciting to have a new award recognition out there.
1: I think of this as the "they stuck their neck out" <laughs> award, right? These are these are the
0: uh, and didn't get their the, heads chopped off and
1: didn't get their heads chopped up. These are the people that are um, stretching, that are innovating from a, a technology standpoint, or again back from you know what I was saying just a moment ago from a business model standpoint. I mean, because that's they're just not afraid. They're, they're not listening to know. They're, they're figuring out, you know, is the the Catholic thing, what do you ask for, for, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> you, um, you just go out and try things and make mistakes and change what you're doing. And, and these, that's what we're trying to recognize is the the ones on, on the bleeding edge, the leading edge, the cutting edge of, of what's going on in these, um, these markets and you know you mentioned before our, our three buckets of themes at the verge 18 conference the energy the, uh, the transportation innovators and, and and what's happening there and then also the circular economy so this is uh, our our put we're putting our stake in the ground and we're saying you know these these are the individuals and and like as you mentioned before organizations that are really setting the, the bar and and encouraging others to follow.
0: Yeah, so uh, we'll encourage you to submit nominations again for individuals, companies and organizations, organizations things also things like uh, consortia, partnerships, public private partnerships, uh, trade groups, things like that. The other thing we launched today and this is not uh, new to Greenbiz but it's it's always a new and uh, exciting cycle is uh, a hunt for startups that will be featuring uh, on the global stage, uh, both in the room and, and the global uh, live stream at Verge, uh, called Verge Accelerate. And these are startups, again, in the arenas of energy, transportation and mobility and the circular economy uh, that do uh, it's a fast pitch competition, two and a half minute pitches uh, on, the, on like I said, the global stage. And um, we are uh, just beginning the search uh, for, for that. And so we'll have the links for that, you'll find them on GreenBiz or in the uh, the page for this week's uh, podcast. Uh, you have to submit a one minute video talking about uh, pitching your pitch, in effect, uh, and uh, kind of meta, I guess. <laughs> um, so look for that. Uh, we are, you know, very much about um, elevating and amplifying and honoring and recognizing and uh, hopefully helping to succeed uh, both large and small companies, and that's a piece of what what Verge is all about.
1: I am in awe of those presentations. I, they're just amazing. They're short, <laughs> and uh, you have to say a lot in those few minutes. And I, I truly admire the ones that, that get get the message out. And um, it really does help you get that elevator pitch, if you will, uh, fine tuned.
0: Two and a half minutes is not that much time. We've been talking now for ten, and uh, so that's uh, one fourth of, <laughs> of since we started the the show. So that's uh, that's a it's a brief moment in time, but. Speaking of time, it's time to move on to the Week in Review. So some really interesting, thought-provoking stories uh, I want to talk about this week. Um, and let, let's start with um, one that, written by David Wigner, who... Uh, long-time uh, communications and marketing professional in the environmental space. And he wrote, uh, I think, a pretty provocative piece called Why Public Opinion on Climate Change Matters to Business. You know, we, we don't think about it in those terms. We think a little bit around consumer demand. We think about public opinion more in the realm of uh, political discourse, such as it is these days but he's making a case that um, that the public opinion is a powerful force that helps shape the public policy that uh, that also influences uh, business and that businesses really need to get ahead of the curve on this. They need to um, take some of these issues much more head-on and direct than they have in the past. Uh, they've been uh, companies have been pretty resistant to state publicly, except for perhaps signing on to uh, the we're still in campaign. Uh, and, you know, hundreds of companies did that. But, you know, and there, there, there's definitely some additional components to that than simply signing an agreement. But, you know, very few CEOs are speaking out on climate.
1: Yeah. And that is a shame because the ones that are speaking out on it are the ones that aren't necessarily you know, supportive of the message that, that I'm thinking most of the people on this podcast, you know, the, the stance that they would take. Once upon a time, right, you, as a CEO, you thought, well, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to show people like just buy the market and, and um, kind of just keep to myself and stick to my knitting, if you will, and just do my job. Unfortunately, this sort of the whole social sphere, right, has um, a way of making messages become viral. Intentionally, intentionally or unintentionally, and lots of lots of people are finding out ways to to, do, to use that to their advantage and, and in ways like I said that it, so doubt and I I uh, I think that was one of the big points in this article that I appreciated was that you know if you pub- you put put a headline um, on a very niche publication such as the sea is rising but not because of climate change that has a way of becoming viral. And, um, and the, the way that people read these days, they look at the headline and they kind of move on and that just sort of sticks in their brain. So the point of this is, is really to sort of, um, you know, Hey, uh, make sure number one, your message is getting out there and you need to speak up. And number two, you need to remember that unfortunately for good or bad, people are very superficial with how they read these days. And I, I I don't know how I, as a journalist, I'm not really sure how to, how to get around that because I, I, um, I struggle with this every day. Um, you know, how do I make my headlines better, but how do I make them not too clickbaity? Right. You know, you don't want people to just be, you want there to be depth. So this is one of those stories that, that does make you think. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm not sure I'm feeling optimistic after reading it, but uh, well, it, there but,
0: there, are, there is some constructive advice here. And, and, and David points out how to uh, influence uh, two particular groups uh, that were identified by the uh, Yale program, the, called, well, the Yale program for climate change communications, the concerned and the cautious. Uh, the concerned are people who are more likely to take action if they feel directly threatened by climate change and they sort of have a clearer understanding of how what needs to be done, how to mitigate it. But they don't believe that the actions being taken today are effectively dealing with the threat. And so... Uh, They mean uh, they're looking for companies to really step up. And then there's also the cautious. They tend to believe in climate change, which is just I hate that sentence because it's not a belief system. It's a scientific fact. But the cautious have a high gap between their belief that climate change is happening now versus sometime in the future. And so to engage these these people, it's key that company communications close the gap. So uh, a thought-provoking and, and, and thoughtful article, as, as David as typical uh, typically uh, does on, on the pages of GreenBiz. So I encourage you to look at that. I want to um, just
1: add one more thing to this, and I apologize, Joel, for breaking in. But I think the other thing that I came away with that was a little bit different is is remember that the messenger isn't just the media. That communicating and using your business partners, that people, the ones that people trust – you need to find the people that are the right trusted messengers to help communicate your your belief system, and I, you know, and that that may be slightly different sources than than in the past. So I just wanted to just close out my thoughts with that that comment.
0: Well, let's move into another sort of messaging story, also very provocative, by um, our friend and my mentor, John Elkington, the chairman and chief pollinator of Valens Ventures. Uh, and a uh, Green Biz, uh, editor-at-large, uh, he, he wrote a piece called Zen and the Triple Bottom Line, and he sort of uh, bounces off of uh, Robert Persig's 1974 book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that had an impact of him at the time, and takes a quote from that about how the truth knocks on the door, and you say, go away, I'm looking for the truth, and so it goes away, which is sort of a puzzling kind of circumstance. And and what this is really about is uh, actually relates to a piece that, that John recently uh, wrote uh, for the Harvard Business Review. 25 years ago, John coined the phrase triple bottom line. I don't think most people know that or associate him with that coinage, but he's, he says it's now time to rethink that. He's actually put out a recall uh, of, of the of the phrase and he wants to uh, you know take it back and sort of look at it and and think about uh, what he calls a strategic recall to do some fine tuning and so you know the, the triple bottom line is this sustainability framework that aligns a company's social environmental and economic impact and and it's worked to actually become pretty much a term of art uh, whether directly or indirectly in the world but he says it's time to rethink that and so in zen and the uh, uh, Zen and the Triple Bottom Line that we published this week, he's you know he takes a look at why why that needs to uh, what we need to be rethinking, and it, it, this all leads up to a project that Volans and John uh, are heading up that called Tomorrow's Capitalism Inquiry, where they're going to be uh, working with the UN Global Compact and 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 others to sort of think about what is what are the new metrics, what is the new framework for how we think about tomorrow's business.
1: Yeah. And I, P.S. I didn't know <laughs> he came up with that. I definitely was, this article was an education for me and it it made me really think about the power of phrases and words and, and how we, we talk about things To go back to the messaging, um, conversation of a moment ago, the people, planet and profit mantra, right? That's, that's another one that, that we've, we've come to really closely associate with the triple bottom line concept, um, and it, it's just a reminder of, number one, the need to keep it simple, but, but number two, the, also the need to revisit constantly the way you're talking about certain concepts or progress or uh, whatever it happens to be. Because when someone co-opts a term and starts using it, as more people start using the term, it becomes um, almost... Like more impactful, but also less impactful because the, the meaning kind of gets diluted the way that people use it. So I love the fact that, number one, that he's the one saying, let's revisit this. You know, it, it, it's tough as a creator to admit that maybe something needs to be re, re, reconsidered. And I really admire um, this whole effort to, to, to recast and rethink about this.
0: So let's move over to our third story of the week, which is uh, about some new research that comes from uh, Marshall McLennan on the challenges to reporting on climate resilience and how to overcome them. Uh, CDP and the uh, Martian McLennan Global Risk Center uh, came out with a report this uh, past week looking at, uh, you know, the, the the struggles companies have in uh securing leadership support for a wider approach to taking on, addressing climate risks, uh, how to overcome the siloed risk management processes and integrate those more with sustainability, and the limited experience that companies, and particularly the risk management folks inside companies, have with climate change scenario analyses. And this is a a really uh, important and, and big topic Um, As companies are being asked by mainstream investors and increasingly by governments, particularly in the EU, to take on and hew to the the guidelines of the the task force on climate related financial disclosures by reporting what are the risks that they're facing in a climate constrained world and make that uh, explicitly known to investors.
1: And this is one of those things I've been following actually pretty closely for the last year since the recommendations were made. And then also um, the SASB, the, the, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, is, is working on sort of a, a similar track. I mean, it's different, but, but, but the, the bottom line is that this sort of push for integrated reporting, right, for, for making these kinds of disclosures more commonplace just across the entire financial reporting mark, category, if you will, it's definitely a thread that uh, is is gaining momentum, but at the same time, this is voluntary, right? So it's still voluntary. It's still um, something that these organizations are being encouraged to do. Um, from the, the the task force on climate-related financial disclosures, those are voluntary recommendations, and so to go back to the Vanguard concept, you see leaders and and, um, risk takers, if you will, no no pun intended because this is about risk, understanding and and recognizing that they need to talk about this. These are the organizations where the chief executive officers understand that climate risk is risk to the company and that they cannot separate these things. Um, It's not a good, it's not a sound business decision over the long term. I think that's part of the other thing that that makes the, the difficulty is right. This a lot of these things are long-term thinking. Instant gratification, quarter to quarter, financial performance world are, are tougher to to hard of, sort of handle. You 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 hear people commenting on quarterly earnings calls about the quarter. You don't hear them commenting as much about two years from now or three years from now and. It's just it's just the way things are right now. So it's absolutely going to be a uh, a mindset change um, from lots of different levels. Um, and I don't know I don't know if it needs to become more regulated. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I'm sure you probably have an opinion about that, Joel. But you now, right now, it's voluntary. And um, you know, until you get guilted into it, or where some, someone's got a, a really strongly, uh, you know, a, a smart, forward looking. CEO, uh, it's hard. It's hard for the standard. Well,
0: I think this is where the market is going to speak. Uh, the market of investors, and they're going to make it um, yes, voluntary from a, a legal perspective or a regulatory perspective, but mandatory from an investor perspective. Here's the the data uh, point that I think is is most cogent, and 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 just also really points out the disconnect between investors and companies in terms of the kinds of reporting they do. According to the NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, only 6% of corporate boards view climate change as a top five issue affecting their company in the next year, and uh, slightly more, only 9%, so 1 in 10, 1 in 11 um, directors, our board's uh, view that it will be a relevant issue over the next five years. You can contrast that with the finding of the World Economic Forum's annual global risks report, which Marshall McLennan uh, helps put together, which ranks climate and environmental related threats as the most likely and most damaging risks company face over the next decade. That is the disconnect, and that is what uh, needs to be overcome. And this piece by Lucy Nottingham and Jane Stevenson, Uh, Lucy's with uh, Marcia McLennan, Jane is with the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, uh, offers at least looks at three of the things that companies need to be thinking about. So this is an important uh, arena. And for all of the communications things we've been talking about and, and reputational things that we've talked about already in the last few minutes, this far and away is the most material to companies future viability and profitability. So a funny thing happened over the past week, Uh, Heather and I uh, both did interviews with different spin-offs of the old Hewlett-Packard uh, with our sustainability folks, and we didn't know about it. <laughs> we should be talking more. Uh, that's uh, that's our problem. But so we ended up with um, two different conversations uh, with two different companies, both related to HP. For some background, uh, you know, this is HP. Of course, is the company founded in a one-car garage by in Palo Alto, California, by Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, initially making electronic test equipment, and uh, became really the in some ways, the centerpiece of what became Silicon Valley, one of the the, the really early uh, companies, but also one that with a very strong environmental ethic, particularly around uh, here in the Bay Area and, and and caring for the San Francisco Bay, on which the headquarters almost sits. In 2015, H Hewlett Packard split into two companies. Uh, one one is called HP Inc., which is the uh, company that uh, sort of most consumers know that's the old um, personal computer and printing business and something called Hewlett Packard Enterprises which sells servers and enterprise services um, and since then there's been some additional merger and acquisition spin-offs and things like that um, but um, uh, I had a conversation with the head of sustainability Chris Willis at um HP or Hewlett Packard Enterprises and, and Heather, who, who'd you talk
1: to? Oh, I spoke with Nate Hurst and he's the Chief Sustainability and Social Impact Officer of HP Inc. What I did, I mean, this, it, you know, just for, for, <laughs> for the benefit of the audience, this is uh, let's release corporate social responsibility report season for us. And we receive a lot of um, emails right at this time of year. With the great uh, updates from from big companies big and small and so the reason I interviewed Nate was was sort of on the occasion of their latest CSR report their their latest sustainable impact report and the thing that I focused on with him was their work on circular economy principles so they've you know planet partners is um, a very long time program for for the company if they inherited from the original um, Hewlett-Packard. And it's, it's the program that, 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 um, you're probably, you've all used at some point where you, you return cartridges and they, they take the, the plastic and they, they recycle them, they reuse them and so forth. And this has been going on. That, that program has actually been in place for 25 years, which is pretty impressive. But, um, I spent most of my time, um, talking to Nate about different ways that, um, they're trying to, scale what they're doing. So, um, you know, how do you take a very specific set of, of take-back initiatives and make them more scalable, get more of the materials, use reuse more of the t- materials, you know, from an innovation standpoint, how do you get that resin out, how do you process it, where do you process it, and so forth. You You can read the story for some more information on that, but the thing that I think struck me the most out of the interview was um, we talk about this as a good for a company right moving to circular economy principles is great for um, reuse it's great for on maybe on the operational side but this uh, what what really really impressed me was HP Inc actually links um, at least 700 million dollars in revenue from from last year to its sustainability message so they Because of their ability to say with certain product, you know, bids and so forth that these products are made of this material and this is how we do it and and this is the content that's reused and as well as the the sort of operational stuff that the company does, they were able to actually, you know, point to $700 million in new revenue that was related to that. So I have... um, tons and tons of clips from the conversation but what I would love to just leave the the listeners with is just this thread of comments about why um, Nate feels that more organizations need to to really focus on the building demand so understanding um, what the customers need and, and actually talking that up with their customers so it's not just about changing your manufacturing processes it's about actually talking to the customers and and, and letting them see the value of that and then you know, helping them understand that. And only by driving that demand for these products will you see the prices come down and for, you know, for it to be easier for the supply chain partners to actually make these investments. Because you, know, you, you don't want someone to be investing a lot of money in this new equipment if they're not going to get the value out of it. So here's Nate on why it's important to build demand for these products.
2: One of the challenges is, you know, we need to we need to increase demand for these reused and recycled materials. I mean, I, in a lot of the the circular economy kind of thought leadership working groups, you know, which were we're part of many, whether it's the CE one hundred of the Mac- Ellen MacArthur Foundation or the accelerating circular economy group within WEF and you know this includes us and, and some of our competitors in these conversations. I think what we're we're all trying to grapple with is is how do we get these reused recycled materials in the supply chain? How do we create more demand for them so that our our like minded suppliers are are prioritizing these materials right as as they go forward. How do we drive down the cost. And one of the ways you can drive down the cost is increase, you know, the volume of it um, and demand for such products. So our hope is that um, the market continues to increase for, you know, customers voting with their, their checkbooks and 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 wanting to buy uh, products that have more recycled content in them. I, I think one thing that would be good for you guys to cover more is just the, the business value that, you know, what we call sustainable impact, you know, others may call sustainability is really delivering for the business. So this work, you know, some of what I mentioned and additional work that you find in the report, I mean, it, it was a key differentiator for um, over $700 million in new revenue this past year. And that's a 38% year over year increase that we've seen in sales bids with sustainability requirements. So I know in, you know, in the past, you've talked about sort of triple bottom line and, and these types of things, but I, I, we're seeing the, a a real shift, um, in a lot of momentum in terms of the, the contribution that sustainable impact can have to the bottom line for the business. And, you know, as a, is a, a chief sustainability officer that that's very exciting, right? That, it, it feels less and less like we we have to sort of back in the old days when you constantly had to to make the business case. The numbers are starting to speak for themselves.
1: So Joel, I I, I don't know I didn't you didn't mention it in the intro, but I'll just mention it. Is Hewlett Packard probably one of the companies I've covered the longest in my career, and of course I know HP Inc. very well and uh, Inc. No pun intended. You know, given that that's the one focused on printers, but the thing that I know. The other division of of Hewlett Packard, the Hewlett Packard Enterprise, for is is these big, massive servers and data centers and so forth. So, what did you get out of your conversation?
0: Well, first of all, just to be crystal clear, there it's not a division of HP anymore. It's a separate company um, that is has its own. Uh, stock and and board and everything else, uh, but yeah, I was checking in with uh, Christopher Willis, who's the chief sustainability officer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and um, wanted to you know hear sort of the latest of what's going on over there because they have been leaders, and I too have followed them since uh, really uh, early um, two thousands, two thousand one, two thousand two, when I first really started to talk to them and learn what they were doing. And what I was particularly interested in hearing from Chris about was. Uh, the circular economy. Uh, what you know? How are they thinking about it? Uh, how is it uh, impacting their business model, their customer relationships? And uh, turns out there's a fair amount going on there. So here's what Chris Willis from Hewlett Packard Enterprise
3: had to say. One of the exciting things and one of kind of the exciting business models I think we have is is really sort of when you focus the life cycle approach of something like server technology, we have a very unique model. Customers have the ability to do a couple of different things. One of the things that they can do is focus on the component of the life cycle that makes the most sense, i.e., where do they have the most influence, which is really other than the design and the energy efficiency. It's in the use phase of the product itself. They can theoretically outsource the upstream and downstream impacts of that product by partnering with the appropriate company. Yeah, you know, I think because we have both the depth and breadth and expertise, and have been around a long time, and have really figured out how to optimize the lifecycle approach to our products, that we can provide something like, for instance, if they finance some of their server products, they theoretically outsource the management both upstream and downstream of that particular product. So they outsource the design to us. And then they also outsource sort of you know the life cycle, end of life management of that particular product. And there's a number of things that we're able to do, both through financing, if that's the approach that they take, consumption models like our GreenLake. So this is new, new consumption models where they could simply purchase or use what they need and nothing more. But we also offer a suite of life cycle services. You know, one of them's We call HPE Renew, where we offer remanufactured products. So how we're handling it at the end of life when they're done with it. We put our name behind it. They have the same reliability and performance, but at a reduced cost. These are products that are typically a couple years old or less. We sell certified pre-owned products, you know, which can range anywhere between a year and a half or even 25 years old that are previous generation products that we actually certified to our standard and sell to other customers. We do trade-ins. So we offer trade-in value where we're actually able to partner with the products and and give them optimal residual value. And then we do asset recovery services. One of the things that I think a lot of sort of a lot of us overlook is as companies are leapfrogging or, or moving to new gen technology, it's often overlooked. What are they doing with the existing gear? So we have a whole team of folks that does asset recovery, even if it's not our product, where we'll actually do everything we can to maximize the residual value of those products, and that could be through upcycling those products, so they're actually refurbished and resold back into the market. We actually share the revenue with the, with the client, or if necessary, recycled, but done so in a way that it's got the backing of a brand and a company of our size. We actually do recycling and I believe 64 or 65 different countries and we identify those with the strongest history of compliance and then partner with those. And of the products that we bring in over 70% of them um, are actually reused or upcycled and about 30% is recycled, but in this responsible manner. So it's kind of a multi pronged approach and it really, you really need to look at the full life cycle, obviously, as you know when it comes to this. So from an upstream perspective, one of the things that we've begun to do is incorporate a recyclability assessment into the new product introduction process. We've done that with our Gen 10 servers, so we can actually calculate end of life recyclability prior to even going to market with a particular product.
0: We get a regular stream of books coming into Green Biz uh, every week, it seems. And every week on Saturdays, we run Green Biz Reads, uh, excerpt from one of the latest books. And one of the latest books that rose up to the top of the pile is called All in the Future of Business Leadership by David Grayson, Chris Coulter and Mark Lee. Mark Lee, who's the Executive Director of Sustainability, a hybrid uh, think tank and consultancy based in London and uh, here in Oakland, California. Uh, It was nice enough to stop by the Green Biz office to to talk about the new book. Hey, Mark.
4: Hi, Joel. So good to be here and uh, delighted to talk to you about All In.
0: So first of all, I have to ask as a fellow author, why another book on sustainable business? What inspired you? What, What was the hole that you were trying to fill?
4: I don't know if it was so much hole we were trying to fill as looking back over a couple of decades and realizing we had something at our fingertips that felt worth exploring, digging into more deeply. That was the Globescan Sustainability Leaders Survey. It started in 1997, so on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the survey, we wanted to look back at all the companies that had been top ranked in that set. 51 companies in all had appeared in the ranking over the 20 years. And we thought there must be some stories, some learnings, some lessons, maybe some mistakes as examples as well, uh, that by talking to the people who were the leaders in those companies uh, over those 20 years would be worth sharing, spreading, and trying to expand on to think about the future as well.
0: And one of your authors, uh, Chris Coulter, is the uh, CEO, I think, or uh, I'm not sure his title, but at Globescan, which is based in Toronto and is a... a global uh, public opinion and at least that's how I know them, uh, firm looking. And then they do this leadership survey uh, every, several times a year, I think. I'm I, one of the people on the list and I don't always get to fill out the pretty long form, but it's, it's quite an extensive bunch of questions. One of the things that struck me is that you have on page 21 a, a, a chart showing who the top ranked companies were every year, or at least uh, this page has 1997 through 2005. So 1997, when uh, Globescan began Again, this and if you look at the top 10 companies, um, there were maybe three that I would consider still leaders. So you've got Dow, Monsanto, 3M, DuPont, Body Shop, Shell, ABB, Naranda, it's a big mining company. Interface, the carpet folks, and BP. Uh, Three of those companies have been acquired: Dupont by Dow, Body Shop by uh, Natura, right? What's the Monsanto uh, by uh, Bayer. And um, so there's only seven of these left, but not a lot of these are leadership companies anymore. And if you go across the list, it's kind of like that. So what does that tell you about the state of sustainable business leadership?
4: Yeah, you're right to go back and look at how different the definition of leadership was in those early days, and. We labeled three eras over the 20 years. You've keyed in on the first, which we call the harm reduction era, running 1997, 2005. And then it shifted to what we call the strategic integration era. And finally, we think we're living in a purpose-driven era right now. Those companies illustrate how much people's external perception, I think, of what constitutes sustainability leadership has changed. Um, the BPs, the DAOs, the Shells of that day were in some ways pushed to their leadership position by regulation. Uh, The CSO of of 3M, who we talked to, Jean Sweeney, she pointed back at the emergence of the Clean Air and Water Acts in the US and and at their leadership saying, the best thing for us to do is to get ahead of this. Let's make, quote unquote, pollution pay. Let's run programs to drive waste out of our business that also keeps us way ahead of those regulatory standards. Um, Interface, who you mentioned, is interesting because they're actually the only company that's stuck in the survey the entire 21 years. But we have seen this evolution it's definitely shifted from more heavy industrial folks who were focused on the classic kind of do less bad you know reduce environmental impact and waste through to a set of companies who today are more defined not exclusively but close uh, to being consumer facing um, much more prominent global brands uh, we see at the top of the survey today unilever probably not a huge shock for folks who follow this space uh, but also in the mix um, privately held companies like patagonia Uh, some new folks creeping into the survey as recently as the 2018 results that were just popped. Danone, which I think is interesting, the largest B Corp in the world today. And we see folks slip in and out of it over time as well. Walmart had first peaked in the leaders survey around 2012-2013 and it disappeared for a few years. It's back in 2018. Uh, I think probably Project Gigaton has a lot to do with that as a modernized expression of their ambition uh, as first captured in their Sustainability 360 plan back in 2005 2006.
0: So just to be clear, these leaders are the ones that were identified by the survey respondents of the GlobeScan survey. It's, it's it's thousands of people. I think. Uh, do you w- tell us a little bit about who's naming these companies as as good?
4: Absolutely. So yeah, the GlobeScan Sustainability Leaders Survey has a panel of about 8,000 people worldwide. Uh, Each time we do the survey, we generally get responses from around 1,000 per survey, and they're scattered across about 80 countries. Um, It's overweight to North America and Europe. About two-thirds of the respondents come from North America and Europe. There's no majority type of respondent in in the set, uh, although the largest plurality is corporate. So these are folks who work on sustainability issues inside corporations. About a third of the survey um, respondents come from there. And if you take in addition to those people who come from service organizations or consultancies, organizations like ours, the survey respondents are about 50% private sector and 50% other, government, academia, et cetera. Um, The other standard for those folks is they do have to have a minimum number of years working in the sustainability space, minimum three, and more than two-thirds of them have worked in the field for at least 10.
0: So back in the harm reduction era, that 1997 to 2005, I think, uh, a lot of those companies were, in some cases, drag kicking and screaming into the conversation. I mean, DuPont uh, was one of the largest uh, greenhouse gas emitters, and uh, um, there was another one that was, I think, the largest uh, toxic emissions. Uh, 3M, I think, was one of the largest toxic TRI uh, toxic release emissions. What's driving the companies now in the in the current era? Um, it, it's you know, they've they've cut out a lot of that you know, do no harm kind of stuff. What, what's happening now? What's driving the top level?
4: I, I think what's different today is that instead of trying to address issues that were kind of created often by the very business model itself, you know, those companies are what they are. They reflected our economy at that time and where wealth was being created in it. Um, Today, folks are more focused on sustainability as an opportunity. Uh, It's a driver of a lot of innovation. Hannah Jones at Nike was one of the folks that we talked to, and I loved how she described the work they've undertaken internally there to make sustainability and innovation into synonyms. And I really believe in that as a kind of statement of intent. What does that mean? Yeah, that that sustainability can't uh, be a benevolent impulse. It absolutely has to add value to the company's business model, it has to drive creativity around how people think about products and services. It has to enable better, you know, not just better in terms of the impact on society and, and the environment, but also better in terms of performance uh, of the products and services that are delivered. So Nike FlyNet sticking with Hanna would be a great example there. Uh, I think nutritional values being packed in by food companies would be another example as well.
0: So look forward a little bit. I know you don't have a, a survey that has a crystal ball attached to it. But if you start to think about uh, in 10 years when you do, let's uh, say, an update to All In, um, what are some of the changes, that the drivers that you think uh, in leadership qualities you'll you'll be seeing?
4: Yeah, looking towards the future, I think one thing that Green Biz focuses on a lot as well is where we're going in terms of circular economy. So we've thought about three past leadership eras as we tried to imagine the next era, we really picture a regenerative era. Got to see that closed loop kind of approach in practice and in mentality. Also, we clearly need more geographic spread. Um, Not only the survey respondents, but the companies we've cited in All In mostly come from the North and the West. And if sustainability is a global imperative, and I believe it is, and we've got to have companies and economies worldwide participating in this too. We found some great entrepreneurs leading on those fronts, people like Helen Hai, an amazing Chinese entrepreneur trying to bring more sustainable business models to Africa, um, who are maybe setting that pace out in regions and on edges that we don't study enough. The book is called
0: All In, The Future of Business Leadership. The co-author, Mark Lee, along with David Grayson and Chris Coulter, Mark is the Executive Director of Sustainability. Mark, thanks for stopping by.
4: Thanks, Joel. Huge pleasure.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find there more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz Events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always appreciate your cards and letters, e-cards and e-letters. Greenbiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.